Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with David Dalmar Sentiez, the founder of Resilient Coders. David, I'm so glad that we're finally doing this. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really pumped. Yeah, me too. Um, I was mentioning this to you before we went live. By far, um, just the most um, most just natural mentions of of any one person and one organization that I should connect with has been. David and Resilient Coders, uh, no less than five or six of the podcasts we've done, uh, folks have just said, oh, wow, like you really, you're interested in kind of bringing tech into underserved communities. You got to check out what Resilient Coders is doing. And from afar, I've read up and admired what what you've been up to. And, and for a while, I've, you know, we've been working to try to get together on the podcast. We're doing this in the morning um, on, a, uh, on a Tuesday in October, and it feels like summer finally now has ended and it feels pretty, pretty fall outside, um, raining, raining a bit this morning. Um, and I couldn't be happier to be sitting here with you. So thank you. Uh, thank you for being here. Really grateful that you're doing this, um, kind of in between your busy teaching schedule. Uh, where is it that you teach? Uh, so we're downtown. I, yeah. I sadly yeah. don't do a yeah. ton of teaching myself yeah. hands-on anymore. Yeah. Um, we're right downtown financial district. Really flattered to hear that, uh, people have, mentioned us to you. That's, that's really kind of you to say. Cool. Are you in the CIC building? Yes, we're in the CIC Street? building. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah, that's cool. I, um, I kind of cut my teeth in tech at, at the CIC building at um, is it one Broadway, Broadway in yes. Kendall Square. Uh-huh. Yeah. Back when Tim, like, you know, late 2000s. Um, it's cool to see how far they've come. Great. So that's, is that, that's, that's resilient, uh, resilient coders uh, home base. It is. Yeah. Right on. That's great. Um, so I'd love to kind of go back in time a little bit. Uh, we were talking about this before the podcast and we've got into a little bit in the pre-podcast questionnaire. Um, your name, David Delmar Sentias. It's, um, it's a Mexican name and the, and your last name is two names, um, and, and nod to your, to your mother and your father. Do you want to just explain that briefly? Yeah, absolutely. In a lot of Hispanic cultures, you use both last names, your father's and your mother's last name. Um, when I was younger, I, I tried to, I tried to, you know, have sort of honor that and have two last names here, but it was a little bit confusing for a lot of folks because it does, it can feel like a middle name uh, and, you know, around people who aren't necessarily used to that naming convention. Uh, but I feel like recently there's been a little bit more, uh, I don't know if acceptance is the right word, but maybe curiosity and interest in preserving um, Latinx cultures. And so I think the time is right to <laughs> try it again. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's both, it's both a nod, nod to my heritage and also a nod to my mom. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, and so you, and where, where were you born? I was born here. I'm the first gen, first okay. born in my first family. gen. Mm-hmm. And what part of Mexico are your parents from? My family's in Mexico city, Mexico city, seat of the empire. Okay, cool. Yeah. I got to make it down there. Actually one of, um, the, the founder and CEO of our company, Fabric Media, his um, father-in-law lives down in Mexico City. There's there's talks of a fabric offsite down there, which I'm, awesome. I'm very much a fan of. It's the greatest um, city in the world. Yeah, my my requirement whenever I go anywhere abroad though is to see a soccer game, as we were talking about oh, before. Yeah. Like when my when my brother goes to Sevilla and we go to Spain, I'm like, as long as there's a like a soccer game involved, uh, I just I love how much um, folks around the world, and in particular Mexico, Spain. Um, Many other places, almost 
almost anywhere in America. I just love the game. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, when was the last time you were down there? Uh, maybe about a year ago. Oh, cool. Going so, back over Christmas. I'm very excited nice. with all of my aunts, uncles, and cousins. That's awesome. Like a million of them. Cool. Is there, is that like a direct flight? Do they got direct flights? They do have direct now? flights now from Boston. Yeah. <clears throat> That's awesome. One of the things I talked to Brendan Ryan about, he's the founding executive director of Hub Week, former chief of staff for Deval Patrick. One of the big accomplishments they made when Deval was governor was adding like nine or more like direct international flights into Boston. Um, which I think may have included Mexico City. Uh, but anyways, the point is just making it really easy for people to come here, but also for people who live here to make it to a big international destination. Absolutely. So it's cool that they make it easy for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, where did you grow up here in the States? I grew up in Syracuse, New York. Cool. And what, uh, like, what, year, what year were you born? 84. 84, okay. Mm-hmm. So I have, I have some good friends from Syracuse that are about the same age I went to BU with. Oh, really? Yeah. Did you go to Boston University as well? I did, We covered that. Was Uh, that undergrad? To BU College of Fine Arts for undergrad, yeah. Nice. Yeah. So we were definitely there at the same time. That's cool. I graduated in 2007. That's cool. I graduated in 2006. Nice. So just a year behind. Yeah, my buddy Ronnie Aldawani, he's an Egyptian-American, first generation. His parents are both from Egypt. He grew up in Syracuse. And and his whole family have migrated to Boston. Yeah. Wow, small world. Um, So what was it like growing up in Syracuse? Uh, cold. <laughs> sure. Uh, I went and looked at Syracuse, by the way, did before you? I quickly realized I would prefer BU, at least it was a yeah. little less cold. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, uh, Syracuse is fine. Um, I, we, we were there when, uh, I think Mexican immigrants were still a bit of a novelty. Uh, so when I was a kid, we were actually interviewed by the newspaper. <laughs> which, really? Which thinking back on it now is it's like kind of it's yeah. kind of fucked up. Yeah, it's can fucked I, up. Can I say fucked up? No, you can say fucked up. Right. Yeah, like that's like kind of racist. Yeah, we yeah. were interviewed by the by the by the Post Standard, um, and I remember. Oh, hey, we got some token Mexicans here. Let's throw them on TV. Like, yeah, well, on fuck. paper. No, okay, so let's throw them in the paper. Yeah, and um, wow. I remember this because wave them in front of everyone. <laughs> Like weird. <laughs> the journalist asked. Sorry, <laughs> that's <laughs> no, just no. odd. It is odd. <laughs> I remember the journalist asked, like, is. You know, she, she asked my parents if you experienced some sort of culture clash here in Syracuse. Okay. And my father looks at me and he goes, the boy puts ketchup on his tacos. <laughs> That's a funny answer. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, we got so, yeah, yeah. Like, he's, he's, he's being quite Americanized. Um, oh, I had a buddy growing up that used to throw ketchup on his pizza. Uh, that's unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, dude, yeah. you're get, we're getting the wrong pizza. If you're yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, we need to find another one with more sauce because yes. this is not right. Um, cool. So you grew up in Syracuse. You went to BU. You found yourself in Boston. You did, and you said you were in the College of Fine Arts. Yes, sir. At, at BU. Yeah. And what kind of what led you from BU College of Fine Arts into coding, into like computer science? I had to pay rent. You had to pay rent. I had to pay rent. I, yeah. So I, I get a lot of Survival. questions. About, yeah, yeah, I get a lot of questions about why I'm passionate about technology. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is, I don't really give a shit about technology. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm not right. I'm passionate about economic empowerment and mm-hmm. opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, I graduated from the College of Fine Arts. I learned, uh, I learned quite a bit in terms of making fine art. Um, and then I got out, and I was like, okay, so food, student loans, totally. And so um, living, like breathing, like requires sustenance need to pay for it right <laughs> yeah so i could design i had a design degree okay um but that wasn't <clears throat> enough to get a job anyway everyone was like all right cool but can you also code to which i was like no i just told you 
art school. Yeah. Um, until finally I, I would say that I somewhat exaggerated my, my aptitudes yeah. um, in coding. Uh, I was hired and then I just learned very quickly on the job. What job was that? Uh, my first job was at the Boston Phoenix. Okay. It was actually at a, uh, the Boston Phoenix used to own like a, like a dating company. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Well, so they used to manage like the, do you remember the back of the Phoenix? Yeah. The last couple of pages of the yeah. Phoenix? Yeah. That right there. Okay. So it was that. And then I was part of the trend, like transitioning that to, to sort digital. Of digital. To digital. Yeah. We were digitizing it. Got it. Interesting. So mm-hmm. was the job kind of like for uh, computer science, like at least like front end design, like coder type of thing? Like, did, were you like, learn, like trying to like, were you like Googling things on the side? Like, how do I do this? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, I was lucky in that I had a couple of folks around me who were much more technical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was able to lean on them for a lot of stuff. Um, and uh, I just kind of learned Google stuff on the side, mm-hmm. figured it out, discovered that I liked it. I enjoyed it. Um, and that was, that was the beginning of it. Cool. So you're at the Boston Phoenix. Mm-hmm. You made your way... Uh, how many jobs did you have before you found resident coders? Like you made your way to pay, PayPal. Yeah. Point. So, yeah. so I was hired at the Boston Phoenix by this amazing individual, um, Sarah Hodkinson, who is now at, um, TripAdvisor. Yeah. And so she hired me to that job and then she moved on to a startup called where, okay. And basically hired me at where, and then where was acquired by PayPal. Okay. What did where do? Um, so where, uh, basically did sort of geo, uh, geolocation advertising. Okay. Um, and so they were, they had like the patents on, like if you, if you a couple years back, you yeah. open up your phone and you're yeah. on like Pandora, the free station or whatever, and yeah. you get those ads that say, yeah. Hey, you should go to Arby's, which is like two miles away. Mm-hmm. So where had the patent on that technology? Interesting. Okay. And, yeah. And so PayPal acquired yeah. us in order to be able to sort of scale that up. Smart. Yeah. Patents rule the world. That's a whole other side. I talked to um, the chief intellectual property officer at Cyprin Global the other day, and it, it's patents have been fascinating me recently too. I mean, if, if you have a good patent, I, have, I had a buddy who the only patent that Wayfair currently owns, they mm-hmm. own one patent, is a patent they bought through acquiring my buddy's startup, uh, Trumpet. Awesome. <laughs> if you got something proprietary, go through the channels to patent it. Um, you could have yourself a nice, nice ticket, um, yep. nice golden ticket. So from where you then got, was it, was it early? So it was a kind of like an acqui hire into PayPal. Like, did you guys all become PayPal employees? Exactly. Yeah. What yep. year was that? Uh, that was, I think it might've been 2012. Okay. Um, how long were you at? And then how long were you at PayPal? So I left in 2014. Yeah. Right. So I, um, now at this point, one of the wonderful things about that job was that they were sending me around to all these great, um, conferences and events and and I got to hear some wonderful people. Yeah. You're getting paid to learn. Totally. Yeah. And, um, I had this one experience where I went down to, um, I was at South by Southwest, um, which was phenomenal. And this was 2013 and I was down there and I heard these incredible people get up and pitch and they were pitching absolute, these elegant solutions to bullshit problems. Okay. To inconveniences. Yeah. And I'm sitting there thinking like, yeah, yeah, Yeah. I'm sitting there thinking like, is this like, have we just reached the apex of society where this is what we're worrying about? Mm -hmm. Um, Because people are hungry. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. Now at this point, I'm like this. Gonna, so you're thinking it from like a job creation standpoint and an opportunity standpoint, right? Like how is this creating more opportunity? Is that it or I'm thinking in yeah. terms of why are we talking about the wrong things? Yeah. 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 From a practice. Yeah. From a pragmatic standpoint. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Now I, I'm a big, I'm a big history nerd, right? And yeah. so I, you go back in time, right? Yeah. Every single advancement in social progress. Yeah. Hand in glove, some degree of technological uh, advancement or progress that enables that social progress, right? So, for example, what would so what about what would the civil rights movement of the '60s have looked like without television? Would the Kennedy brothers ever have learned of Dr. King mm-hmm. if it weren't for TV? What would uh, you know? What would the sort of uh, workers' rights movement have been without radio, right? You go back in time, all the way back to the Roman aqueducts, to the development of the wheel, to harnessing fire. These are all technological solutions that empowered the continued rise of humanity and culture. So I believe that technology has a fundamental responsibility to society. Where are we now? What is technology doing to further the advancement of people and our standards of living? Because I don't think we need another social media network uh, for some niche group of people, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. I think we need to put the full force of our technology, which is substantial, into ameliorating the biggest crises that we have today in our generation, of which I believe there are exactly two and no more than two. One is our climate crisis, and the other one is our crisis of equity, of who is it that has a stake in the building of our civilization and who is left out, mm-hmm. right? So I'm sitting there at South by thinking, I just don't care about this other version of Facebook and this other version of LinkedIn and this, that, and the other thing. We need to harness the brilliance that we have in this room to solving those problems. Yeah. And so it, could it be that maybe in this room we have the wrong people? Could it be that at the helm of this technological evolution, we have people who are disconnected from our society's real problems? And I started looking around me. And I started conducting a bit of a social experiment, Mm -hmm. trying to identify people who uh, are visually identifiable as people of color. And I started listening to that language that I grew up with. How many black and Latino people are here? And I counted 14 people. In like all of South By. In South By. Yeah. Yeah. Who are not like, you know, who are not working, who are attending. Yep. So I came back from that and I was like, I don't know what I can do about this, but I got to do something. I got to do something. Yeah. And so I just started just teaching. Yeah. And so I went to, um, I, I went to a youth detention facility and I was sort of, uh, ticking down my vacation days. Every Wednesday I would just take it off and okay. I would go down to a DY facility uh-huh. and teach some boys, um, HTML and CSS and basic stuff. Um, what's a DY facility, a department of youth services. Got it. Okay. Um, essentially youth corrections. Yeah. Where were you going specifically? So there's a, there's a DYS facility called the Connolly building, uh-huh. which is down at the, the sort of the, the bottom tip of Franklin park. It's sort of technically Rosendale. Yep. Um, and I was going down there, uh, to teach a class and, uh, it's just off. donating your time. Yeah. Just giving yeah. my time. Yeah. At this point, it wasn't really like a structured mm-hmm. program. Um, it was just me giving my time. Yeah. Can I interject here to make Please. an observation about the South by story? Mm-hmm. It was interesting. And when you gave those historical examples, mm-hmm. um, is it fit? my takeaway is that in all those, at, at any time there's a technological advancement mm-hmm. and this, this is my, this is a bit my belief, but you seem to re- reaffirm it. It's always been 
the ability for that technological advancement to be communicated yes. to the public for it to actually enact change. Like if only yes. five people knew this is how you make fire, then like the rest of the world didn't know, like right. then there's, it didn't have any ripple effect and it didn't really have like, like the type of causal impact it, it, it could and should. Um, and you can make the argument that in 2019, and we kind of were talking about it more like putting, putting this nifty little microphone on and we're like creating a, a podcast and it's going to get out to the world, like the snap of our fingers. Totally. Like there's, it's never been easier to share yes. information. Yes. And so it is like everyone in, in like the right, the people in power and technology and innovation, mm -hmm. like economy, generally speaking, should it is a requirement and we, and we should hold ourselves accountable to leaning into the communication of this of technology and and how technology can be an, an empowering tool for for all people yes. so not only here's what it is but like here's what it can do for you yes yeah there's a there's a necessary popular dissemination of any technology Right? It's a popular dissemination of technology. And I think that sometimes when we think about popular dissemination of technology today to folks who haven't necessarily had access, whatever access, maybe in that context, I think often we're talking about leveraging uh, these folks as consumers. But it is time. It is time to include them, not just on the consumption side, but in the production side of this technology as well. Because what is most impactful to me about technology is not what the actual written product, what the coded product can do necessarily, but rather who it is who's building it, mm -hmm. right? The prosperity, the opportunity for prosperity that lies behind that technical product, mm -hmm. that's what's exciting to me. Mm -hmm. Because in this country, we are very good at creating pathways to prosperity. Mm -hmm. right? So what we have to do is look back and examine whether we're creating um, pathways to prosperity that are equitably accessible, mm -hmm. or if we have consciously, chosen some people to follow us down this path pathway to prosperity and have left other left others behind. out yeah so thank you for playing like that's a perfect response um and kind of bring you back to where you were at and thanks for letting me kind of jump in there when you're so you're at that point in your life you're donating time you're at the you know roslindale line you're with these young <clears throat> you know underserved at-risk youth you're teaching them um coding skills you're trying to instill in them like the knowledge of you know the ones and zeros behind those products and things that get to market because in there lies value that they can bring to um the business world and and, and consequently earn paychecks um so what you know how long were you sort of like did it how, at what point was it did it go from like i'm you know i'm donating time i imagine you were mindful as you were doing that as to how you were going to create a segue toward like can i formalize and create a framework and create a and create my own put, create my own pathway yeah. or put my own put my energy into creating hopefully multiple pathways but you know how did how did resilient coders kind of like form out of that and kind of talk about you know the pathway as it's manifested over the last few years mm -hmm. um and i'd love to talk a bit about what you're learning what next steps are, what types of community leaders, collaborators you um, aspire to work with to help grow not only resilient coders, but maybe adjacent complementary, you know, pathways and maybe other, you know, complementary disciplines. 
Um, so that's kind of like a long arc of where I'd like to take things where we, we still have like, you know, 25 minutes here. So by no means am I trying to rush the conversation, but back, back to the, um, initial just donating of time and how it started to formalize. Why don't you kind of walk, walk us through that? Totally. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a startup guy at heart. Right. And so I decided that I would build a program like you would build a startup. I didn't want to build a nonprofit the way most nonprofits are typically built. I wanted to start by really investing some time in experimentation and small batch runs. Mm-hmm. Right. I want to keep it sort of agile and lean and yep. just do as much learning as I can to either validate or dispel my assumptions before actually building something. Yep. So what I did was right. uh, I set aside, um, I spoke to the Boston police department. Okay. I'm very loud. Right. Yeah. And so I was knocking on the BPD's door and uh, I basically said, look, it costs the Commonwealth of Massachusetts $173,000 a year to keep one of these boys locked up. Yeah. Like what if we, what if we were to think differently about that money? What if we were to put it to work, keeping people out rather than keeping them in? Yeah. BPD became uh, our first committed sponsor. Right. And so uh, they were like, all right, if we do this, we do this, but you got to quit your job at PayPal and do it for real. Mm. Uh, so I sat down and I, I unfortunately don't necessarily have the funds to just go without an income forever. Right. <laughs> so I sat down with my wife and figured out like, how long can I go to stand up an organization that makes money, that is sustainable financially yeah. before I close it down? Yeah. Figured out what that gap would look like. Uh, left my job at PayPal summer of, t- uh, actually it was, it was May of 2014. It was mm-hmm. my, it was my 30th birthday gift to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I left, uh, started up the program and I spent that entire summer doing similar work at different, um, camps and schools. Uh, and so I would go around to different schools, different sort of summer camps and do these sort of short run class. I had space downtown at the CIC. Uh, and I would tell the students, if this is interesting to you, come join me downtown after school. We'll just keep, kind of keep coning together. And I use that as my metric of success, what worked and what didn't work. Like if I taught at a school and no one joined me afterwards, I understood that I had failed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that for about a, about a year um, while uh, I was able to, to pull in some, some early seed funding. I told those funders early on, I said, look, I don't know what this program is or is going to be. And so if you are interested in investing in resilient coders, you're investing at this point in what is fundamentally an experiment. Mm-hmm. So they did that. We got some, we got a coalition on board. Uh, some early folks jumped in like the Boston foundation, tug tech underwriting, greater yep. good, a bunch of folks jumped in. Um, so now <clears throat> by then I started realizing that we had, uh, an, we had a special amount of success with folks who were a year or two beyond high school. And we're like, look, we're not high schoolers, but can we join anyways and listen in? To which I said, yeah, absolutely. And those folks who had been out in the real world for a year or two and picked up what I call life bruises, right? Who understood that there was something that they needed to do to put bread on their table. Those kids approached resilient coders with notebooks open, ready to learn. Mm-hmm. We discovered about ourselves that what we are is not an academically oriented program. We're not about high schoolers. We're not about getting people to college. We're about providing pathways to jobs. We are fundamentally a workforce development organization. Mm-hmm. And so while we were at Mass Challenge, uh, we spent our time there crafting what it would look like to just directly place folks from point A to point B into high growth, automation, resilient careers. Mm-hmm. And so we launched our first ever boot camp. And so uh, we, we were determined to provide some degree of a stipend so that folks could learn. Um, so 
we could only run a program that's as long as how, you know, however long we could afford to siphon people. Right. Um, so in 2016, um, and half of 2017, it was eight weeks long. We jumped up to 14 weeks at the end of 2017. This year it's 15 weeks long and next year it'll be 20 weeks long. Okay. And it's just, um, it is now a highly, highly competitive boot camp. We can sadly only, we only have room for about 20% of applicants. Um, we're committed to working with folks who are early in their careers, um, black and Latinx, um, don't necessarily have a college degree. Don't um, necessarily have a college degree. Don't have, yeah, the overwhelming majority of our students don't have a college degree. Yeah. Um, and connecting them with full-time jobs as software engineers. Uh, and this year, so far, we've been um, successful. We have about, we've so far, about a 96% placement rate. From, from among our graduates wow. into full-time jobs so far an average salary this year of $98,300. That to me is transformative change. That to me is what we're about creating some sort of a pathway into Boston's middle class. That's amazing. Uh, is there, is the, is one of your goals to increase the 20% that you can accept? Like where does oh, that, absolutely. and how do you, how are you eyeballing or planning, plotting out increasing your scale? right mm -hmm. now. Absolutely. The gating factor for us is employers. Um, we don't want to accept more people into the program than we feel we can likely place into jobs. Cause it's only a, it's only a good pathway if the path ends with a job with a job oh, and that 96% yeah. is critical. Oh yeah. 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 Not, like, I you don't want to let 50% in and then it drops down to 60% getting jobs. And it's, that's not, I can't believe yeah. that we can have a discussion. I can't believe that people would entertain a discussion about education without a direct avenue into jobs. Couldn't agree more. That's madness. Yeah. Especially when you think of the value that is placed in education. I feel like there's a certain degree. There's, there's, an, there's an American dream here that has transformed over the course of the last generation because of the fact that we have been allowed to believe mm -hmm. that education especially college is the entry point into that 1% yeah. that can actually see their salaries continue to rise over the years. Just to kind of level set, just to throw some numbers at you over the, since over the last uh, 40 ish years between 1980 and about 2014, the bottom half of earners in this country, right? Bottom 50% of earners in America have not seen a wage increase in real dollars, not accounting for inflation or social or social programs. Right. That's 50%. Yeah. Now, in a similar period of time, looks on paper like our economy has stagnated since 1980, right? But it hasn't. In that similar period of time, GDP, GDP, uh, corporate share of GDP has gone from 6% to 9%, right? Corporations are doing fine. Yep. So where's that money going, right? Now, the, the top 1% of earners have seen their incomes triple in that period of time. CEOs have seen their incomes go up ninefold, 900% increase in salaries for CEOs. What happens is that since 1980, we have chosen to rewrite the laws of what society is, what, what, rewrite, rewrite who has pathways to prosperity and who does not. And we have all silently signed on to this new social contract. And a part of it is we have been allowed to believe that if we go to college, we can be one of those one percenters. So I have so many thoughts and I want to try to keep them focused. <laughs> I am having, I'm incredibly disappointed with the in 
general the secondary education in in this country and and sort of like the uh, the the high and the you know the higher ed that you see um, rampant across uh, and I'm talking like I'm talking everything from prestigious schools <clears throat> maybe a not you know maybe a notch below Harvard I see plenty of it I've you know plenty of friends that went to a BU or Northeastern or a Suffolk got tons of student loans finished school had no like good job prospects didn't have any pathways or frameworks at the school to help shepherd those kids into jobs job fairs are a joke um there's a bunch of like i'm imagining all the responses you'd hear from like a university it's like oh like we have a job fair oh we have this it's like that it's not like very specifically catered um education with with a in partnership and in concert with private sector mm-hmm. such that the graduates are all like essentially part of a third party internship education program that shepherds them into a job. Like yes. that's education. Like to me, education is like, and, and it's, and I don't see many, I don't see many programs like that at the university level. I, I do. I, there is one I've discovered. I'll share, like share with you. Just curious if you've come across this, that what, um, Boston Public Schools are doing with Boston Plan for Excellence and Boston Teacher Residency. I don't so, know about that. So Boston Plan. So this is a good one, like for some alignment for resilient coders. But and they're working with in Wentworth. And cool. Wentworth's doing that. And that's where like it's reaffirmed some of them. Like, shouldn't it be like this? And they're actually about to have like a. The, so it's the Dearborn School in Roxbury. Oh yes. And I'm going to the Dearborn Advisory Meeting in like October 23rd ish. I'll. I have to sync you up with those folks and maybe we can make it happen. But this is Jesse Solomon's program. Jesse Solomon yes. and Marty Fuller like uh-huh. does external relations and, and we had her on the podcast like early on. And it's interesting. So like I went to the last advisory committee meeting and, and Wentworth was there. Mm-hmm. And what Wentworth is doing is they're advising Dearborn School. Yep. And Boston Public Schools, like, here's the skills we need. Yep. For those for like, because in because one of my th- things as as a contributor was like like, where do you see the issues with, you know, um, getting students ready for college? And I was like, because some students shouldn't be getting ready for college. Some students need to need and already are providing for their families. Right. And they need to make money. Right. right? And and so then we like, they, then we kind of went down this, this um, tangent about what Wentworth is doing, which is providing like a, it's, it's a small program within Dearborn um, provides skills to students uh, in in sort of engineering um, and went and 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 Wentworth basically signs off on some of the curriculum so that when they graduate at eighteen they have some college credits and they can go to Wentworth for a shorter amount of time but when they go to Wentworth Wentworth helps place them in a essentially like a co op internship that has a stipend so they start making money and they graduate really quick right and so they started their like college education we'll call it in high school and then it's like with a very specific like specifically to help expedite them through a pathway to get a job very very rare i think it's very you know very small right but yeah but more of that yes. like like we need to flip you know we need to flip it on its head and make that be then you know what you know the pathway resilient coders is doing the pathway wentworth at boston plan for excellence and dearborn is doing like that's more of that and and mm-hmm. what excites me about having moved back to, to boston after five years in la is and seeing the similar issues almost like exacerbated if you go out in southern california 
Because everyone in SoCal is just like, oh, just send your kids to private school. I'm like, okay, fuck cool. everyone. Yeah. I'm moving back to Boston. <laughs> because in Boston, people actually, there's plenty of people that care about their collective, uh, yeah. you, know, na- you know, neighbor, it all, you know, all men and women from all backgrounds. And there's plenty of people working on these problems. And they're not just going to like try to like get their piece, bigger piece of that 1% and like mm-hmm. send their kids to private school and forget around everyone else. Because that's what's going on in Los Angeles. And that's fucking bullshit. Um Sorry, Los Angeles. I love LA, but <laughs> socioeconomic standpoint, it sucks. Um, and there's not, there's not much, there's not many promising programs, but in Boston there are. So um, curious if, if that is, if that strikes, uh, you know, obviously that probably strikes some, some, some positive chords with you on like the Dearborn side of things. Um, totally. But yeah, like that, that like, it, so back to kind of getting back on, on track scale but not scale for scale's sake scale and ensuring that employers are dialed into this sounds like the biggest thing for you i know the biggest thing for dearborn is finding more microsofts of mm-hmm. the world that are signed on to help create feedback loops and mm-hmm. create connective tissue such that teachers in the summer go go to microsoft garage and learn and students are going and building like Yep. almost like brand affinity with the Microsoft and seeing visualizing themselves in roles there. Um, so how do, how do we accomplish that part of it? Is, is it like a co- in concert, like directing some, you know, communication and evangelism toward the wayfarers and the trip advisors and the fidelities of the world, the Amazons, like there's all these big companies, these big employers of Boston. Um, I imagine you've thought of this a bit. How, like what's, what's like, how can how can a storyteller like myself? How can folks listening kind of help um, get in front of more businesses? And how do businesses engage in the resilient coders framework so that you can mindfully increase your scale and still enjoy, you know and, and accept more than twenty percent and still enjoy your near one hundred percent yeah you know job job rate? Yeah, I would say. Um... Wayfair actually, to call them out, is a is a big partner of ours. They've cool. actually hired like a couple dozen nice. coders. Um, and how's that relationship? How did that come about? Oh, it's phenomenal. It's um, well, it's a couple of things. They they just need talent, right? They're scaling mm-hmm. up very quickly. They need talent. Yeah. Uh, a question that I get often from from prospective employers yeah. is people find some sort of polite way to ask. You know, why would we? hire out of resilient coders when yeah. we can hire out of XYZ college. Yeah. And there's really only one right answer. Yeah. And that is this because they're just better. We just need our students to just be that good. So that, such that they can compete with college degree holding graduates and go on to work at these companies. And so Wayfair is not doing us favors, right? They're not, they're not hiring coder after coder after coder because they think it's cute, right? They're hiring them because they can just write some damn good code. And so a lot of our employer relationships, including Wayfair, have started somewhat conservatively because we represent something that's very new to the recruitment efforts. Um, And they hire one or two and it goes really well and they come back for more. Mm -hmm. We tell our students, it's, this is your success on the job is about more than you. Yeah. It's about the next cohort and it's about your, it's about your neighborhood. It's about your community. It's about mm-hmm. changing the narrative, right? About who a, it is. Yeah. Sorry. You have, yeah. It's great. You have not only a responsibility to, but also you can then become like a critical cog in, in growing this and 
moving yes. forward. You can, yes. your success can give more young people opportunity. Yes. Our managing director of engineering <coughs> has a, a brilliant point that he makes. We tell this to all of our students. He says, you need to be Harriet Tubman, right? When you realize your liberation, whatever that may mean to you, you need to go back and bring one more. We tell our folks, this economic expansion is not going to last forever. Mm-hmm. And there's a window of opportunity that you have managed to jump through, right? That window is going to close. We will have a recession and we need you to be able to reach back behind you, grab that window, muscle it open so that those who would follow in your footsteps have an opportunity to do so. That when that recession drops, yep. right, the it's first coming. people who are going to be axed are going to be, let's be honest with each other, Black and Latino people, right? And so what we need is not just to place folks into jobs. We need them to be able to advance mm-hmm. to a degree where they are part of the decision-making process mm-hmm. and they are able to craft a, a response to who is it that we choose to bring with us down our pathways to prosperity, mm-hmm. right? They need to be part of that decision. So would you say one of your goals, like your a goal for Brazilian coders, maybe in the immediate term is sure, like more... Um, Blacks and Latinos in in jobs in tech, but more so, in, aspirationally speaking, in like senior to upper management jobs in tech, right? Is that is that like that's an outcome yes. that you're projecting that you increasingly like it, your success will be? You'll probably hold yourself accountable to a success metric that's like yep. how many more people, uh, young people, did we help? nurture and provide a pathway, not just into employment, but actually to have a seat at the table eventually. Exactly. It's yeah. not enough. There are too many, organ- Boston has too many organizations that are just plopping people into those entry-level jobs and forgetting about them. Right? Yeah. And that's just not enough because that just perpetuates the same cycle, yeah. which is that some people are chronically underemployed. Yeah. Right. And so what we need to do is create pathways to jobs that are automation resilient and continue to grow as does the rest of the economy. Yeah. I like to say that people in this town need to be able to rise along with their property values. Yeah. Right. So that doesn't mean just staying at yeah. that one same job. Yeah. You need to have a pathway to continue to rise. And I got to say it's tech agnostic we have chosen the path. We've chosen technology for a couple of reasons. One of which, because that's where the jobs are also because it's objective, mm-hmm. right? You can prove your worth, mm-hmm. right? With most other jobs, there's an element of subjectivity, Mm -hmm. which allows some of that bias and racism to creep back in. Mm -hmm. But if you're like, look, here's my code. It works. Run it. It's it's just that simple. Yeah. What a few other thoughts. One, like your financing, like Mm -hmm. how are, like, how are you financed? And are you, do you openly accept, like, what's your cap tape? Like, is it, are you set up as a, for pro- like, what's the f- official structure of the company? We're a nonprofit. You're a nonprofit. Okay. Folks can donate if they want to. ResilientCoders.org slash donate. Okay. Um, but we also, uh, we invite our employers to help us make it sustainable by paying us a recruitment fee. Okay. Um, that seems, that seems fair and appropriate. Yeah. Because yeah. we're, we don't, we don't charge our students a dime. Mm-hmm. There are some companies out there that also charge like a deferred mm-hmm. tuition. Fuck that. That's just falling into the same tropes of like the debt for crisis. profit yeah, education, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, it's like the debt. It's like another way to perpetuate, to perpetuate debt. the debt crisis. Exactly. Um, it, yeah. And the, so, yeah. Go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say ahead. that like, I, there's the other thing here, which is worth exploring, which is what, what do we think education 
is, right? I always tell people, like, if, if we determine as a civilization that we believe that education is a civil right, mm-hmm. everyone has a right to education, then we need to look ourselves in the mirror and think long and hard about the fact that some people are paying for better access to yeah. a civil right than yeah. other people. Yeah. And in the, if that's the case, then we need to think long and hard about quality free education that is paid so that people just have to take on a second and third job. So I want to ask a follow-up on that, but before I forget this other thought, the reason I asked you about <laughs> financing, Cyprin Global, who I mentioned, I had their chief intellectual property officer in recently. So Katie Hall, like that podcast will go out. That will be the one that precedes our podcast going live. And um, she, I, you should just connect. Like, like as she said, after we, we were off, the mic went off. She's like, we're kindred spirits. Um, (laughs) And like, in like, in the same way that I feel like we're kindred spirits and like what you're talking about is what she cares and preaches about. And for her, it's not, you know, it's certainly a lot about, you know, the, the the lack of, you know, females that end up in the, in those as chief Mm -hmm. decision makers in those rooms, but minorities and underserved in general. And so I think there's a lot of, and there's a lot that she's looking to participate in and as an ambassador and, and, chief executive at Cipra. And I think there's also maybe some brand alignment there that, that they may appreciate um, uh, getting closer to resilient coders. So I want to make that connection after. Yes, uh, And I know she'll, I know she'll love it. Um, so it's interesting. You just talked about sort of like universal, you know, access to education. Um, so in your opinion for the, you know, just to not go too deep into politics, but are you like, it seems that you might be a fan of like, what Bernie Sanders has kind of advocated for. Is that fair to say? Like, do you think any, any politician has wrapped their head around and communicated like a plan for education that you believe is, if you were only choosing a political candidate on education, like that's, that's the plan and the candidate that you would vote for. So there's two things that I like to consider when, when listening to politicians, one is the, the, the nature of the plan itself. And the other is whether or not it's, it's feasible. Feasible. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I'm not, I'm not a Bernie person. Um, not because I don't, I, I think that Bernie is to use your term, a kindred spirit. Like mm-hmm. I, th- I think that I would love to sit down and, and grab a beer with Bernie. And I think that we'd sure. probably find a lot of philosophical alignment. Um, I am not an economist, so I have to take the words of other economists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so other economists are a bit skeptical about the, uh, the economic viability of this plan. Yeah. Um, and they feel like there's a little, there's a little bit more viability in the Elizabeth Warren plan. Um, and so, uh, with a combination of my sort of philosophical, uh, intuition and set of priorities, along with, uh, taking the word of economists that I trust, yeah. uh, I would I sort of put more of my chips in the uh, yeah. Elizabeth Warren bucket than anything else. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And it's a very thoughtful way of, of sharing. Thanks for sharing how, like you would make that sort of a decision. Thank you. Um, so we only have, I know we only have a couple minutes left, um, but I'd love to talk a bit about sort of, you know, f- two to two years from now, five years from now, like, you know, the goals might be a little different, but when you kind of look ahead, forecast, look near crystal ball, this, um, you know, this Christmas, this holiday season, when you're back in Mexico city with your family, um, what are you, what's, what's the future hold for resilient coders in Boston, in other cities? Like what is, what is growth and, and change and progress look like for you? Yeah. I, so I don't know about 
five years, um, but I want resilient coders to shut down. Mm-hmm. I want resilient coders to become 100% obsolete. Um, the way that I frame it to our students is I want our students to tell their grandchildren someday that they got their start in tech um, at a coding bootcamp for people of color. Yeah. And I want those grandchildren to ask, why the hell would people of color need their own coding bootcamp? Um, and so the fact that we exist is in some sense an aberration of what society should be, right? We are a, we are a Band-Aid, right? Um, and so I would want to be a part of a more uh, globalized and systemic solution um, that makes programs like Resilient Coders no longer needed because by then we will live in some sort of equitable meritocratic society where people have the opportunity to advance professionally based on their, their aptitudes um, rather than their, uh, their station in life. I like to say that people, um, Boston Tech should not be led by the smartest from among the luckiest, but by the smartest full stop. Mm-hmm. That's noble. So the, the, the most aspirational future for resilient coders is a future that doesn't actually require resilient coders to exist. Shut it down. Yeah, right on. That's amazing. David, is there any, um, any particular ways that people who have listened to this podcast can reach out to you um, for any multitude of reasons? Yeah, we get a lot of folks who who listen to um, me, uh, you know, ramble on or read me rambling on uh, and are kind of quietly thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm down, but I don't know what I can do. I'm just yeah. sort of this small figure at this massive tech company to which I would invite that person to reach out to me. Uh, they can just email me, uh, david at resilientcoders.org. Uh, and even if they just say, hey, I'm mission aligned, but I don't know what we can do with my company, uh, we can at least connect that person with other folks um, who feel similarly. I believe that the way that we transition out of the age of talk, there's a lot of companies out there that are tweeting these values, right? Yeah, everyone can tell. Like, show. Tell, Why don't you show yeah, me what you're doing? Exactly. Yeah. We got yeah. to transition yeah. to an age of do. And yeah. the only way that will happen, literally, the only way is if people organize. Mm-hmm. And so people who are in isolation, listening yeah. to stuff like this, thinking this is cool, but like, I don't know what role that I can play. Mm-hmm. Be a part of a movement mm-hmm. in which other people feel as you feel. Reach out to me, we'll connect you. Yeah, that sounds great. Actually brings up, did you guys have an event or a gathering that you do as of yet? Yeah, so yeah. We, have, we have our demo day. Uh, so okay. demo day is when students get up and pitch themselves for yeah. 60 seconds a piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they present their work mm-hmm. to sort of make it to empirically prove the the, the uh, aptitudes that they have. Cool. And uh, the next one is going to be in December, December Wednesday, December eleventh. Great. Let's mm-hmm. let's jam and, and collaborate on that ahead of time. From I love a, that. From a media production and storytelling standpoint, would love to help shed a spotlight on that, and then also um, have a lot of um, my intentions uh, with Boston Speaks Up in the community mentioned a couple of people I've talked to that need to connect you with specifically is to sort of, um, you know, manifest in the physical world too, to kind of like share ideas and frameworks and all that different from what's going on with the, the Dearborn school. So, awesome. um, David, this has been a pleasure, man. I'm so glad we did it. Thank you, Zach. Yeah. Cheers. Likewise. All right. Cheers, Boston. 